For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. NASA's Curiosity rover touched down on Mars on August 5th, 2012, which means it celebrates its 10th year in Gale Crater in just over a week. 10 Earth years, at least. Building on the success of the previous generation rover Spirit and Opportunity, Curiosity pushed the envelope of exploration with an innovative sky crane landing system, a mobile platform the size of an SUV, and an entire science laboratory to study rock samples collected in situ right inside the rover's belly. Over the last 10 years, Curiosity set out to discover past habitable environments and characterize the early history of Mars to discover its origins and whether it could support life or not. Largely, it's been successful, and just this year, it's been approved for another extended mission. It continues to climb ever higher on Mount Sharp and teaches new things about the rocks here. I wanted to have a fun look back at the Curiosity mission and really understand its impact on Mars exploration, so I decided to call up Mission's Deputy Project Scientist, Abigail Freeman. Abby returns to the show to tell us about her favorite moments in the rover's history, as well as what it's up to today and in the future. All right, so we're here today with Abby Freeman from JPL. Abby, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm just so excited to have you back on the show. You're returning second time now. Um, last time we had you on, we were doing a little bit of uh, really specific stuff. We were talking about Vera Rubin Ridge, but this time we're going to take a, a step back. We're going to look at the big picture, and we're going to talk about um, a great mission, Curiosity, which is celebrating a huge milestone, 10 years in August. That's really, really exciting to celebrate. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's nuts that it's been 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we last talked in October of 2020. So, uh, raging pandemic at the time. Uh, it's been a long time since then. What have you been up to? What's been uh, your, your uh, you know, what's been your day to day for the last couple of years? <laughs> well, a lot of staying at home and trying to stay away from other people and, you know, not spread COVID. Um you know, we've been continuing to do our rover operations for Curiosity remotely. So uh, everyone's been doing that mostly from home, although we've all come back to the Jet Propulsion Lab um, about a, two or three months ago, I think. So it's been nice to have a place to go into work and see everybody. Yeah, for sure. So, so how do you feel about this milestone? This is this is pretty big. Um, you know, uh, ten years is not a milestone that every space mission gets to enjoy. So, this is a you know, it's a nice thing to get to. Are is a team doing anything fun? Is there like parties going on? Tell me a little bit about uh, you know what you how you're feeling right now with ten years coming up. Yeah, you know, it's there. There, first of all, there's just like shock that it's been ten years because I remember <laughs> landing site landing night so vividly and it does not seem like it was 10 years ago. Um, you know, but when I look back on everything that's happened in my life since 2012, I was a graduate student, a third year graduate student when Curiosity landed. And in that time I picked up my PhD, I got a postdoc, I got a job at JPL. Um, 
and uh, now I'm the deputy project scientist of the mission. So when I view it in that way, yeah, 10 years, that has been a long time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm so excited. I'm so excited and proud of the team that we're able to celebrate this milestone with a rover that's in as good a shape as Curiosity is. And the science is just as good, if not better, as it was when we landed, because we're really starting to get into some juicy rocks that are showing us a lot about Mars. So, and yeah, we are, we're going to have some celebrations. Um, we're going to have a little celebration for at least the small portion of the team who is local at, uh, at Pasadena, California. We'll have like a little party at Caltech, I think, with some you know, fun goodies and, and hopefully our team members all around the world are planning to celebrate in their own way, um, the ways they can. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause it, it's, it's now reached a point where if you look back and you watch say the, the landing video, you know, it, it's a, it's a pretty famous video now, the, the, with the jumping and screaming people and all that kind of thing. It's long enough ago now that you can look at the clothes and go, Oh, that was a different time. Oh, yeah, I remember that shirt and oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the clothes and the haircuts are starting to look a little dated. <laughs> We've now crossed out of the threshold where things oh, look normal. Goodness. So yeah, 10 years. <laughs> so uh, for fun, the other day I went and I looked at, um, you know, I looked at like the original mission objectives of Curiosity. I was like, well, you know, what what, what did we plan on doing with this rover back in, say, well, like, you know, this is further back than 10 years ago, 2005, 2006, 2007, when this was all coming together. Um, and it was really funny because a lot of the things that were open questions now or then are like really obvious to me now. Like, the, so, you know, one of the things is like, look and see if there was like organics on Mars. And it's like, well, yeah, of course there are. Like we've been, we've been looking at them all over the place. And so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but I guess I wanted to ask you, like, do you, how do you feel about curiosity in terms of its performance against those objectives? You know, 10 years later now, uh, is there, is it like knocked out of the park? Is it good, but we got more work to do? Is it, you know, where, where do you put the performance in terms of this mission so far? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the sorts of questions that, you know, NASA asks us when they want to evaluate whether or not to continue funding Curiosity. <laughs> yeah. And the answer is, I think, the way the nature of the objectives and how they're written is, there's always more to learn on them, you know, so in terms of just the level one kind of questions we wanted to answer about whether Mars ever had habitable environments that had these ingredients that we know that life needs, you know, besides water, the organic molecules, the sources of energy. I think that kind of first order question we answered pretty quickly, actually, after landing at Yellowknife Bay, um, which was on the plains of Gale Crater before we even got to Mount Sharp, which was the main section we wanted to study. But even though we answered that question for this, you know, one point in time that was sampled at, at Yellowknife Bay, we have this huge mound of material that represents a, a big swath of Martian history. And so we have the opportunity now to, by climbing up this mound, kind of step through Martian time, and we can see both you know, besides this one single habitable environment that existed at this one point of time, well, how many different kinds of habitable environments may have existed throughout Martian time? And then also uh, looking at the rock record itself and seeing the big evidence that it's starting to show us about changes in climate. And we can start to ask questions about, you know, what did that do in terms of the habitability of the environment and how did that affect all of that? Um, so I think we've answered a lot of the main objectives, but there's still a ton more to do to 
continue to inform our understanding. Yeah, yeah, and and we'll talk a little bit about the the you know what's happening right now with the mission there. But I, I do want to say like it's really exciting to see. Um, cause like in the earlier parts of the mission, there was very much this like, wow, look at all this rock that was like very clearly like underwater. Like there's a lot of like, you know, really, uh, old aqueous environments, but now we're sort of like stepping out of that into like this drier, uh, you know, time of Mars history where it, it was different and seeing, I, I've been really exciting to kind of see like Mars dry up as we climb this mountain. I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, like spin on the original objectives, I guess, because we were looking for the water and then we found the water leaving us, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the questions moving forward, it's like, okay, well, did it just like dry up right away and was that it? Or were there pulses of water, you know, did it mm, come back yeah, and yeah. then go away and then come back and then go away? And then when the water did come back, is it going to be this really acidic, awful water like we saw in Meridiani? Or is it still going to be really nice drinkable water like we've been seeing that would have been present in Gale Crater when the lower rocks were forming. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we have to also give credit to all the other Mars missions that have been operating these 10 years and contributing all together to to uh, improve our understanding of Mars. But I wanted to ask, like, what parts of our understanding, you know, our big revelations over the last 10 years, do you think, like, Curiosity was really clutch for? Like, what could we not have done without Curiosity in terms of um, uh, learning about Mars's past and all these kind of things, it, you know, in conjunction with Reconnaissance Orbiter and Insight and, and, and Maven and all these things, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and let me just first start by really emphasizing your point that the orbiters and especially Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Mars Odyssey, Mars Express, the Trace Gas Orbiter, they have been critical for us both in the data they've collected mm -hmm. uh, over our landing site, but then also in serving as relays for all of you know these gigabytes of data that Curiosity has sent back over 10 years. <laughs> yeah. um, but the really cool thing about the Mars program is that it was designed as a program where each mission is kind of building on what we found from previous missions. So after Spirit and Opportunity, we kind of answered the question that there was water on Mars. And so Curiosity is now trying to answer the question about habitable environments. So beyond the water were all the ingredients that life needed there. And, and, and Curiosity found that, um, you know, found that there are organic molecules and we're continuing to find more and different kinds of organic molecules as we climb Mount Sharp. And I think getting the definitive answer to that question was really critical now for Perseverance, the next rover, to build on. Um, and to go to a site that we were pretty confident was also habitable based on what we'd seen from the orbital data and know that the expectation to look for rocks that might contain organic molecules, you know, that's not a crazy idea anymore because we've found them with curiosity yeah. and we know that they were there. Yeah, totally. Are, are there parts of the mission that you can look back on as like really critical? And I don't know. And when I say parts of the mission, I don't know if that means like, was there a specific area in Gale Crater where, you know, the bounty was really high or was there uh, a specific publication, like one specific discovery that was really clutch in the Curiosity mission? I don't know. It could even be like a specific rock that like really was like a, a pivotal turning point in the mission like what stands out to maybe you know if you like jump forward 40 years in your life when you're sitting on some panel as the honored guest of remember 50 years ago when we had curiosity and there and you know what do you remember at that point in terms of the mission what's the standout sort of time periods in this uh 10 years yeah i have a, a really kind of cop-out answer to that question and 
Honestly, I think it's the just having this integrated set of data collected over 10 years, <laughs> which is really helping us have the aha moments. Mm. Um, you know, Emily Lakdawalla, who's a, a planetary journalist and actually one of my mentors and the reason I got into planetary science, is she's been working on a book about curiosity science. And she says, you know, it's really interesting when you read the original initial papers from the first couple of years after landing, they're all kind of like, oh, we found this elemental trend. It's interesting. We're not really sure what it means. We found this weird rock. And as you go forward in the mission, the papers start to become more of a story and they're telling a more complete story. Well, we saw this weird trend, but then when we integrated in these, you know, 600 meters of suction that we've driven up, oh, like here's bigger picture of what it means. And, you know, just an example, something that happened very recently when the rover was up on top of a feature called the green hue pediment, which is like this capping rock that's much younger than the underlying rocks, um, we found some really weird looking rocks that were kind of, uh, they're called ventifacts. They were sharp and pointy and shaped by the wind. And we looked at them and we said, you know, those look really similar to some of the rocks we saw way, way, way down on the plains when we first landed um, that caused all the damage to the wheels. <laughs> but what got even crazier was when we went and we took their composition, we found their composition was very similar to the rocks that we had seen on the planes, like back on Sol 50. Wow. Um, so, you know, 600 meters in the air above where we first measured these kind of weird rocks on the plane, we're seeing them again. And so it's helping us draw these connections about, oh, you know, maybe this was once a unit that draped the whole area. And, and maybe we can explain how those plane rocks got there and looking at these rocks. And so it's making connections because we have this whole stratigraphy to look at now that I think is the biggest aha moment of the mission, which is just this gradual collection <laughs> and exploration of data. Continuing to dispel the myth that science has all these eureka moments, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there were a couple. They're having a couple where we see, oh, this rock looks just like this rock we saw, and oh, connect them all. But but yeah, in general, I think it's kind of a slow burn um, or you know, a fine wine. It's aging well. <laughs> I love it. Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about what's happening right now. You know, so um, there's been some interesting uh, developments in the Curiosity mission. Uh, I wanted to ask first about this green hue pediment that you talked about, because there's been, there was sort of an exciting period there where it got a little dicey. You know, we climbed up onto this, this pediment from, from this, the second time we've did it, done it, you know, from the other side and uh, the rocks got a little spicy. So I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, uh, what happened up there and why we had to turn around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spicy. I love it. Um, yeah. So it's, as I mentioned, the green hue pediment is kind of this like cap of rock that sort of drapes parts of Mount Sharp. And we thought we weren't going to get to see it until, you know, recently, but we had a chance to sort of taste it a couple of years ago when we just opportunistically said, hey, you know, that slope looks just shallow enough to climb and pop up on top. And we did. And we drilled a sample and we said, great, you know, we think we know what these rocks are and what to expect. And then our, our path actually took us across a big swath of it. Um, and, and what we wanted to do was kind of drive across this entire surface to reach a feature called the Geddes Vallis Ridge, which is kind of this material that's coming down from the upper part of the mound. We think it may be kind of a water-related feature that would be the youngest water-related feature on Mount Sharp. Um, but as soon as we got up onto the pediment at this uh southern location where we were going to do this big long drive across it to get to the Geddes Vallis Ridge, we found that the rocks were somewhat different than what they had looked like during our earlier foray. Um, and rather than these kind of, you know, normal looking sandstones, they were these like 
very sharp ventifacted rocks. And not only were they super sharp rocks, they were just like clustered together so densely. Um, my graduate advisor was looking at them and started calling them gatorback rocks and then sending around all these terrifying images of like prehistoric alligators <laughs> with huge <laughs> spikes on them. Um, but yeah, you know, we were looking at these images and we started to get pretty concerned about this like kilometer and a half we had planned to drive across them, um, both because, you know, the wheels and curiosity, it's well documented that they're getting punctured and holes in them. And, and we've done a really good job at slowing that rate of damage by carefully picking the routes that we drive up. And here we were back in terrain that was like worse than the worst damaging terrain we had ever seen down on the plains. And then also just from practical perspective, you know, even if we had perfect wheels, the the size of the rocks and how they were spaced apart meant like driving across them, the wheel would probably kind of get stuck in these little holes between the rocks and imagine trying to turn the wheels while you're in these kind of little holes. They were just about rover wheel sized holes. Um, so even then, like the drive would have been so slow going, we would probably have a lot of faults, you know, when wheels couldn't move the way we wanted them to move. And we just said, forget it. You know, we can't do this. Um, it's, it's just going to add way too much time and, and consume the wheels at a rate too high than we would like. So we had a really tough science discussion where, you know, we, we talked about this isn't doable and we're pretty, we're still pretty sad. We never made it to the ridge, but we were able to kind of make lemonade out of lemons and we had to do a U-turn and drove off the pediment. Um, still got some cool data while we were up there and then take a new route around the mountain that is at least letting us see a different part of the Mount Sharp section than we would have seen otherwise. And so still getting great science, um, just not going to make it to the the green hue, the Geddes Vallis Ridge where we had hoped. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you were, you were already having a lot of those faults. Like you talk about, you know, things that were throwing you off, just climbing up that ridge because it was getting so, so sketchy so quickly. Right. I, one of the things that I found really interesting was there was a couple times where like you, the, the Rover had tried to drive and then, cl- you know, one wheel had gone up on a rock and tilted it and then it faulted. And then the antenna was pointing in the wrong <laughs> way and you couldn't get the orbiter at the, the right angle and it was causing all these problems like it was so slow because every every fault was like you know killing a plan killing a plan and killing a plan so yeah i can imagine that the that kilometer and a half would have been a heck of an ordeal (laughs) yeah yep yeah and we're in a particularly bad time of year in terms of this geometries of earth to mars and in terms of just the terrain we're around is now like Mm-hmm. much more dramatic than it's ever been with big hills and things blocking our view. And so, yeah. um, you know, we have issues if the drive faults midway and we don't get our turn in to point the antenna just so to talk to Earth. We can't uplink our plans via Earth like we usually do. And we have to wait, you know, sometimes a day or two yeah, for an yeah, orbiter yeah. to pass ahead yeah, uh, yeah. to be able to send it. Um, but I guess the, the, the good part of the story is we do get to go back you know, down on the other side into this, I don't know if you, if you call it a valley, but it's like we're in this sort of little pass, you know, where there was the Maria Gordon notch. And like you said, all these dramatic hills and everything. And for someone like me that is, uh, you know, my career is not on the line for the science. I just get to look at the pretty pictures. So I get sort of the, you know, I get to have fun with the mission. It's been just stunning because these, these scarps and these mountains are just uh, beautiful. Uh, what kind of great science are you getting from this kind of alternate path? Like what's going on down in these, these little valley here? Yeah, I mean, and I, I will say the views have been amazing. And I just wish that, you know, you could <laughs> even get a better sense of scale because these hills that we're looking at are 
tens of meters high. And I think if you were standing on the surface, you would just be dwarfed mm -hmm. by how spectacular they are. And it's hard to sometimes see that. Anyway, um, yeah, so the science we're doing is actually quite interesting. So we're in a part of Mount Sharp where we see from the orbital data, there's going to be this big transition in the main minerals that are there. So the lower part of the mound is dominated by these clay bearing minerals. Um, sorry, dominated by these clay minerals, which we see formed in these kind of lake or river environments. And from orbit, we saw that the clay minerals disappear. And then at some point, these kind of salts start to come in. They're called sulfates. And they're sort of this no man's zone in between where the clays are and the sulfates are. And that's what we're exploring right now. We're calling it the clay sulfate transition. And it's a fascinating area because, you know, the hypothesis is that there's a major climate change that happened to go from these clay rich lakes into something drier and saltier. Um, and then, you know, stepping even further away from Gale Crater on Mars globally, we tend to see clays associated with old rocks and then sulfates associated with kind of middle age rocks. And so this might be representative of kind of a global scale climate change that went from kind of different environments that favored different minerals. And so what we've seen so far kind of driving through this transition is, is our predictions from orbits have held true. Um, we have definitely left the lake um, in our drilled samples. We're not seeing the clays <laughs> anymore. We're seeing kind of hints of these sulfates coming in. Um, and then we're also seeing in the structures of the rocks, they're not lake deposit rocks anymore. Instead, they're kind of these five to 10 meter scale, we call them cross beds, um, which is when you have kind of layers at an angle cutting each other off. Um, if you've ever seen the Navajo sandstone in the American Southwest, for example, that's like classic example of cross beds in similar scales. Um, but these kind of rocks we know form in kind of these windblown sand dunes. And so we've driven into a much drier environment that was mostly sand dunes. Although interestingly, what we've also been seeing are these kind of we call them lenses of rock. They're kind of ridges or, or something that sort of sticks out, speckled throughout the terrain. And when we looked up close at these lenses, what we found was that their structures look like they probably were deposited in something that was at least a little bit wet, like a, a little stream kind of running through in these inner dune areas. So what we're seeing, it's definitely a drier environment. It's not a totally dry environment, um, but everything has changed. Mm -hmm. Is that so um, one of the features that I remember that might match that description was called the prow? Is that the same that we're talking about? Or is that something different? Yes, exactly. The prow was sort of our type okay. location the first time we saw one of these lenses. And we actually lucked out because I think the structures we were able to examine in the prow were kind of some of the best that we've seen in any of them as we've been driving through. But, you know, continuing to ascend through this transition on our reroute, um, we've just seen them kind of dotted throughout everywhere. Yeah, that was like, it, that looked like a geological, like smorgasbord. It was just like, you, all the layers were just like right in front of you. And it was just all pristine. And, and, and like, uh, it was really fun to look at those pictures too. Yeah, everyone was so, and it's like, we're you know, <laughs> getting these, these hand lens images down. We're like, I mean, this is textbook, you know, like, this is so great. I'm going to show this in my intro sedimentology class next year, as some <laughs> of the team members are saying. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk about vehicle health too, because uh, it's, 10 year old rover so you know it's getting a little the joints are starting to ache a little bit if curiosity was a person it might kind of hurt to crouch down at this point in its mission you know it's getting maybe it's one of those those people that makes noises when they stand up and sit down right you're getting to that that part of the uh, rover's age <laughs> um i wanted to ask about the the 
the arm because there was some interesting stuff happening with the i guess the breaking mechanisms inside the arm it was it was and it was impacting drilling so can you talk maybe a little bit about what happened and how you guys resolved that because it seems like it's back in back in action again right yeah a lot of work <laughs> happened with the <laughs> arm break yeah so it was about two years ago um the the break that usually holds the kind of turret that spins around if we want to spin the different instruments around it it just broke suddenly like it just stopped working we had no warning um but you know fortunately we had a, a backup mechanism that could control the break that could open it up when we wanted to move and so i was like okay well we'll keep an eye on it we'll investigate it um we went along for the next year and then a second mechanism broke this time it was on the wrist that kind of moves the whole turret up and down um, and that also just broke without warning after a, a drilling campaign. And so that got everyone very nervous because, okay, just one, it's a fluke, but two, that's not great. And what is potentially very scary is if we do have backup mechanisms for both of them. So we're still fully capable, but if the backup mechanism was to break, then we would be in pretty big trouble. Um, you know, we could still use the arm in a limited way and hopefully if we do it right to, to still be able to drill or do science, but if it broke in the wrong way, you know, the arm could be stuck in some weird position and it could impact our ability to drill or maybe even drive. Um, so this was really serious. We wanted to, to take a break and pause and say, okay, let's really like go full in on and what could be causing these breaks. And what importantly can we do to potentially stop the backup mechanisms from, from breaking just to make sure we have this arm as long as possible. And so the engineers went off into the test bed and they did all sorts of tests. And it, it turns out we think there's a couple things that might be happening. Um, you know, first of all, just being on the surface of Mars for 10 years, it gets really hot and really cold. And so these big thermal cycles going on, um, you know, just stress metal out and cause it to expand and contract. And you have that over 10 years. It's not great. <laughs> um you can make it worse by using the brake a whole lot. And it, and when you do that, you heat it up even more. And so we said, okay, let's like redo some of our procedures where we need to open and close the brake a ton, mostly related to drilling. And let's, let's rework all of those. Um, a second thing that's not great for them is the drilling itself, where we, our drill is this rotary percussive mechanism. And so we spin it around, but then it also kind of works like a jackhammer. And if you can imagine jackhammering on an arm, maybe it's not so great for some of the mechanisms on the arm. And so we said, okay, let's look at every single step of our, our drill baseline and see where can we remove as much of this percussion as possible and still be able to drill. Um, and so we did that and we reworked drilling. I think this is like the fourth time in the mission that we have reworked the way that we drill. It's <laughs> incredible. Um, but we, the engineers came up with a new algorithm to basically say, when you drill, just keep on this rotary only mode for like as long as possible. And then when you do find you're really not making any progress and you need to step up and use percussion, you know, use percussion as little as possible and let's cap the percussion level that we use at a certain mm -hmm. rate. Okay. Um, and, and so all these different things. And we're also looking into if the brakes do fail, what's the arm position we want? And we make sure we stow the arm in that position overnight, just in case and, and all sorts of things. Um, so this took, this took a lot of work, but we finally came up with a new way to drill um, that we think is going to be as gentle as possible on the remaining brakes without, you know, never drilling again. That's not an option either. 
Um, and it was very exciting. We just collected our 35th drilled sample using this brand new way of drilling. Um, the rock was soft enough. We didn't need to use percussion at all during the drill. And um, so moving forward, we'll just keep our fingers crossed and every <laughs> drill could be our last, but uh, we're doing our best. It's, it's amazing what the engineers here are able to yeah, do and come up yeah. with. I, uh, it answered a, a question that I had been having because uh, I had talked to, to Ashwin um, Vasavada, who's uh, your boss, and 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 he uh, he was telling me about, you know, the drilling. We were talking, I don't know, just absently talking about drilling. And he's like, you know, and we like to try and get a sample every, I don't know what it was, 10 meters of elevation or something like that that you, you do. And so I, after we had talked, this was many months ago, and then I was watching the mission. I'm like, man, we keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And they're not drilling anything. What's going on? And so this finally answered a question as to what was happening. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad. Oh, uh, you noticed. We were wondering if <laughs> anyone's going to notice. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's also really because every drill could be our last, because we do know that it causes this extra stress on the, the mechanisms on the arm. As a science team, we're now thinking really critically, like, do we really want to drill here or do we want to wait for this possibly better drill down the road just in case? And, you know, figuring out where to draw that line about, no, we really do want to sample here for this reason um, is, is a challenge it's also fun, but it's kind of the, the way you think about rover missions. You never know what day could be your last and you want to do science in the thorough way, but <laughs> don't stop and poke at every single rock yeah, you see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about wheels too. Cause this is the, this is what everyone sees and everyone always has the question about the wheels. Cause they, you know, every year they look worse and worse, but um, I know you're managing it. Um, I wanted to ask, so there was this, there's this procedure okay so i have to i have to get some more information about this but there's this like emergency contingency like break glass uh procedure that i you know we found this paper one of my listeners actually found it and shared it with me and it and it's like this shedding technique and i didn't really want to like talk too much about it with anybody because it was sort of like at the in the the backwoods of jpl's website published somewhere in a dark corner and i know you guys weren't super excited to have that out uh, necessarily without uh, some context at least right <laughs> but now i saw it in a press release now so now i feel like it's like a-okay to talk about it so please tell us what is this procedure to save a wheel if something gets worse because i i i have to know your perspective on it <laughs> I mean, there's my perspective and there's the, the official perspective. <laughs> it terrifies me. Um, no, it's actually really super cool. Uh, yeah. So basically, first of all, I'll start by saying that the rate the wheels are degrading now that we're not you know driving across the horrible rocks and the green hue pediment, it's still pretty good. Um, and if we just extrapolate out the rate we think they're going to continue to degrade, we think we have tens of kilometers left. So hopefully the wheels won't be the rate limiting factor of the mission. However, if one of the wheel just gets like super chewed up, all of the, they're called grousers, which are the, the kind of metal pieces that run across the wheel. If enough kind of those- like the treads, right? Yeah, they look like the chevron pattern. Um, if enough of those grouser breaks, then we kind of have this, uh-oh, initiate, make the wheel safe procedure. The issue is if the grousers break, what ends up happening is you'll have these really sharp metal shards that are just sort of hanging off there. And what is scary is that the wheel runs close to a bunch, there's a bunch of cabling that goes into the wheel. And so you don't want a sharp metal shard potentially slicing through that cabling or causing a short or something, you know, you don't want to happen. Um, 
it turns out the, the wheel design, sort of the inner third of the wheel is a whole lot stronger than the outer two thirds. And so what's gonna fail first is something in the outer two thirds. And so if enough of the outer two thirds just gets like totally busted up and we're scared about it cutting these wires, the engineers have developed a procedure to shed these outer two thirds and then Curiosity would just be running on rims basically. But the shedding procedure involves <laughs> finding a really big rock that you hope is really stable and then just like driving the rover up on it and manipulating the wheel around and basically kind of peeling it off like a tin can. Um, yeah, it, it makes me so <laughs> uncomfortable to think about it. <laughs> and me too. I've seen the videos. I've seen the like destroyed, ripped apart wheels that they have up in the Mars yard. And um, I am also <laughs> uncomfortable thinking about it. I hope we never, ever have to actually do that on Mars. Um, it would take months probably to just like have all the ground in the loop cycles we need. Um, but you know, it's a better option than than cutting the cables and somehow causing a short that shorts out the entire rover, for example. So I'm really glad we have that procedure. I'm, I'm sure some of the engineers would love to try and would be excited to try it. <laughs> I never want to see it in anything other than a paper, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, hopefully uh, we never see it. That would not be uh, great for the science, but yeah, it certainly would be fun for all of us uh, engineering geeks that are just like, ooh, what is this interesting solution? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a brilliant yeah, solution. Yeah. Okay, so uh, looking ahead, so we um, we just had a mission extension approval, I think. I think it was in April. We did all the official... That's where I guess Thomas Erbuchen puts a stamp on the mission and says, you may proceed. Um, so what what are you looking forward to in the next uh, three years, I guess, was was the, the extension, I think is what they normally do. So, you know, what's coming up for you? What are you, what threads are you pulling on right now in terms of like science questions? Like, what are you really kind of sinking your teeth into? Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about what's ahead for the next three years. Um, I'll tell you about the units we're going to visit in the geologic order that they formed, but not necessarily the order Curiosity will visit them. Um, but first up for us is this layered sulfate unit, which is the, you know, the salty rocks, big climate change. So we're going to explore it just to understand, you know, how was it deposited? What were the geochemical environments that were there? How did these sulfates form? Like what's the deal with them? Um, and then help answer the big question how did the habitability of Mars change as the climate changed? Um, so that's going to be the big picture questions we're going to be answering. Within the sulfate unit, kind of towards the end of where we think we're going to be after three years, um, it's kind of our second major thing that we're going to look at, which are something called the boxwork fractures, which are these big kind of like meter scale sized fractures that crisscross, they form kind of these boxy patterns. And we see them from orbit. We've known about them since landing. And they're really fascinating. First of all, just how do you get these mineralized fractures 800 meters above the crater floor? It tells you groundwater was really high up on the mound at that some point in history. And then they're also going to hopefully give us a glimpse into the subsurface of Mars um, because we think their groundwater was involved in their formation. We're going to be able to understand the characteristics of the groundwater, you know, take a look and understand also their, their preservation potential for organic material. You know, either they mineralize really quickly and trap a lot of organics or they're like a really acidic, bad environment for organics. We don't know the answer to that. So we'll find that out. Um, Stepping forward in time on top of that, and, and what we will get to hopefully very soon, is Geddes Vallis Ridge, 
which, um, you know, we didn't get to see part of it like we wanted to driving across the green impediment, but we'll see other parts of it further up the mound. And it's this sort of giant channel that cuts through both the upper part and the lower part of Mount Sharp. So it's very, very young. Um, portions of it look like a, a channel kind of scooped out. Portions of it are kind of inverted. Um, so it stands above the topography. It's filled with these giant boulders. Um, it has a sort of sinuous root that we can see from orbit. And so the, the thought is that water was involved in carving it out. And um, if that turns out to be true and we get these close-up measurements, um, it would be kind of the most recent pulse of water in Gale Crater, much, much younger than anything we've been looking at. And so that's exciting just to study about this totally different period of time in Mars's history. And then also the boulders that it's filled with got to come from somewhere. We think they're coming from upper Mount Sharp. So it will give us a chance to taste like the top of Mount Sharp, even though we'll never (laughs) probably ever get to drive there. So that's going to be really cool. Um, and then the fourth thing we're going to be doing is just continuing all of the environmental science that that we've been doing for 10 years now. We have a complete record of, of Martian seasons for five full years. I think it's the longest continuous meteorological record ever collected. Um, we're also heading into a really interesting time in terms of the radiation environment. The solar has this, uh, sun has set of this 11 year solar cycle. Um, and we're now kind of moving into the peak of the most intense part of the cycle. And so hopefully we're going to get to see some cool energetic events with our radiation detector. Um, so yeah, there's like there's so much in the pipeline for the next three years. I'm really excited. That's awesome. Yeah. I hadn't even made that connection because with the getting curiosity, one more year would get a complete solar cycle. And that'd be pretty, that's pretty interesting. And it's probably a lot more relevant on Mars with such a thin atmosphere where the sun and, you know, mag, no magnetosphere really. So the, the sun is probably really, you know, you can feel it on the surface, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's probably very, very measurable on the surface compared to say somewhere like earth. So that's a pretty cool um, pretty cool opportunity for the mission to be able to achieve that. Yeah, and you know what our future astronauts going to have to deal with? <laughs> yeah, they're finding that exactly. Out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, some some fun questions as we wrap up here. Um, so if you could go back to any point in the Curiosity mission and spend more time grabbing, I don't know, samples, measuring stuff with ChemCam, anything, any more observations, where would you go back in the mission? Uh, well, I, I wish we could get across the Green Impediment. <laughs> really bummed we couldn't do that. Um, I, I'm still missing that drill sample from Vera Ribbon Ridge where we saw the strongest hematite spectral signature. Um, yeah, and then there's this, a section where the drill wasn't working kind of much lower on the mound that we never drilled. We missed our systematic sampling and and there we really would have liked to sample. So I'd love to go back down there too in the blunts point. Um, okay, remember. good. And then- Got to keep- Keep moving forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to stay on task. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, and then the other one. So, if you had the opportunity to teleport to Curiosity right now, you had a spacesuit, a tool belt, and I don't know some spare parts or something. What would you? What would you want to fix? You know, would it be the wheels? Would it be the the arm? Or would you? Would you add something? Maybe is there like a new instrument you'd add on there? Or what? What oh, would you I do if you had the opportunity instrument? to go and Ooh. do some work? Yeah. You can do whatever you want. You got you got a bag. You can fill with whatever you want, and you can teleport there and do some work on it. Okay, first I would I would fix the arm, the brakes. I would install brand new brakes on the arm. <laughs> okay. Um, second, I might actually put in a new computer. You know, Curiosity has two computers, and we've been running on the B side mm, for yeah. many years now. We have managed to do a big flight software update to reformat the A side to be able to serve as a lifeboat in case something happens to the B side, but the A side's not functional anymore. So, really hoping the B side lasts. So, if we could fix the A side, that'd be great. Um, yeah, gosh, if I could put an instrument, 
I would definitely put an imaging spectrometer, kind of like the chrism instrument we have from from above. I would install one on the mass of curiosity so we could take chrism-like images of the scene around us. That would be amazing. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Good answers. Or a helicopter. We could bring a helicopter too. Oh, I like cool. that. That's a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous. Okay, cool. Uh, anything else you're up to besides curiosity? What else is going on in, in Abby's world? Any fun uh, side projects you're working on or proposals or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, gosh, speaking of imaging spectrometers and helicopters, both of those things. Um, yeah, so I've been been <laughs> leaving Mars for just a little bit um, to do some, some work on the moon. And I'm working on I'm leading a development of an imaging spectrometer to hopefully fly to the moon at some point in the future on one of these commercial lunar payloads. Um, so that has been really fun for me. I'm learning a lot about what goes into instrument building and instrument development. Um, and then, yeah, also, gosh, I'm so inspired by ingenuity. Um, I have been having a great time thinking about science for future Mars helicopters, um, you know, uh, ingenuity 2.0, where we're looking at helicopters that can have like a five kilogram payload and can just fly on their own. 10 kilometers per flight or something just order magnitude more than my brain is used to thinking about and you know what science could we do what if we like yeah. went to valis marineris and we flew through the rocks and the canyon walls and floors what could we find <laughs> so stay tuned okay excellent i look forward to seeing some uh, more work on that <laughs> uh abby this has been great um i'm really excited to have been able to talk to you about this so congratulations again 10 years is is very very exciting any any parting words for for all these curiosity fans out there any uh any final thoughts just stay tuned honestly i think the best is yet to come <laughs> okay good <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, spending time with us and sharing uh, with the, the celebratory excitement. Great. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week, Martians. Huge thanks to Abby for coming back and talk more about Curiosity. Here's to another 10 years. If you'd like to discuss more about Curiosity's mission and get regular updates piped into the conversation, you should join our Discord community over at wemartians.com support. We have a dedicated science channel where rover operations are frequently discussed and blog updates from the Curiosity team are automatically posted there for quick access. It's a great place to hang out with other space geeks and learn more. That's wemartians.com support. Have a great week and at Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.